you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 243 of the iFreak Show. Today in our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hello from Denver. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. My name is James Zuber, and we have a guest today. We have Paul Hudson. Paul, can you say hello? Hello from the Game of Thrones set. Game of Thrones set. I've heard of that. It's, it's the accent. People always think, you know, oh, you know nothing, Jon Snow, when they hear British people speak nowadays. That's true. Now, we've, we've been pretty excited to have you on the show, but some people here, some of our listeners probably don't know who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am one of those uh, increasingly rare creatures uh, who is a full-time author. I write books about Swift on iOS or macOS or tvOS or watchOS or vapor and so forth. Um, so I spend all my time right now writing books about Swift and iOS and similar things. Um, and yeah, I still do coding. I do, I do stacks and stacks of coding, but my main gig really is getting as much great sort of Swift content and tutorials and news out there as I can. Very cool. So what are some books that you've written lately? Whew, lately, I think the most recent one was called Swift Design Patterns, uh, which, you know, I, I guess conceptually was an update of the Gang of Four book for Swift, but in practice really isn't because the Gang of Four book, you know, it's it's small talk and, and C++ and it's not terribly applicable to Swift or uh, Cocoa development. So it's a, a, a fresh book thinking about how Apple's design patterns, things like um, uh, coding, for example, is you know, built into the R platform, things like associative storage, for example, things like delegates and selectors, how these shape the way we build our apps and do interesting things in our apps. And hopefully in a way people can say, yes, I now understand why Apple's own software architecture works this way. I can borrow ideas, aka steal ideas from there and make my own apps sort of better and smarter. That's the most recent one. But, you know, ooh, I don't know, about four or five days or so, I expect I'll be announcing a new one. And what new one would that be? Well, I, I couldn't possibly say, given that we are currently recording on the Wednesday before WWDC. So approximately Monday afternoon, I expect I'll be saying something new about new books. Will it be awesome? Of course. Totally awesome <laughs> on tap around here. So how do you... How do you go from awesome, assuming there is an awesome announcement or two, to a book? Uh, lots and lots of coffee and biscuits. Or oh, cookies, I guess you call them, don't you? Lots of coffee and biscuits is the answer. I, I, there's, no, there's no magic. You know, I fire up IA Writer like everybody else does. I use Git to store my books. Um, but I just sit and write whatever comes out of my head. Because ultimately, 
the kind of book I want to uh, write is the kind of book I want to read. So I'm writing for me effectively and hoping there are people out there just like me, that I am not a beautiful and unique snowflake, that there are people out there just like me who want to read the same sorts of uh, books. So how did you get into this world? Of writing books or just writing in general? Writing books, writing in general, and just writing. <laughs> uh, so writing in general um, was a slightly tortuous route. I'm one of those hideously dull folks who sort of decided at a young age, you know, age 12 or so, um, that computing science was the future. So I'm going to learn coding. And I think I did, you know, Visual Basic and, and Delphi and other things when I was as younger. And by the time I was 21, I'd finished my degree in the UK. I totally specialized in this one thing, you know, really laser focused on doing uh, coding. Got my first job doing coding. But then uh, I just started writing for a, a magazine. Like it, once a month, I'd do a tutorial on, of all things, PHP. It's about 2003, by the way. So it's quite a while ago. That's my excuse. Um, and I'd write a monthly tutorial about PHP, how to make things with PHP every single month. And after about two years, I said, hey, do you want a, a full-time job writing this magazine for us, you know, this tutorial for us full-time, obviously with other things as well? Uh, I said, yes. So I spent the next eight years of my life working on magazines, computer magazines, you know, coding magazines. It was, it was called Linux Format. Um, it's the same company who makes Mac Life in your country. Um, but they're an international publisher. They, they did lots of magazines. Um, and I did Linux journalism for eight years so writing about coding and uh php or ruby or other stuff visiting conferences um you know oscon or uh, the linux summit whatever um interviewing folks from around the world it, it was lots of fun but it, it basically gave me eight years of actual print magazine journalism experience being told every single month we've got to write a new 132 pages what are you going to fill them with and the last sort of three or so of those, I was the editor of the magazine. So I had to decide exactly what I thought was interesting every single month and, and find folks to write it and churn things out. So I kind of became a writer by osmosis, I guess. I just got this job, got promoted a few times and ended up doing it full time. They gave me stacks of training, which is very kind of them. They trained me to write you know, things efficiently and quickly and, and to the point. And then I actually left that. I, you know, the company I was working for, uh, they wanted to do apps. And they kind of looked around the company and said, Who, who's the geekiest people we have here? They looked at Linux format, the magazine I was editing at the time, and said, hey, this, this guy here, um, he's doing iPhone coding in his spare time. We're going to yoink him into the uh, IT team to do coding full-time for the company. So I kind of reversed course a little bit and became a coder. And after three or so years of that, four years of that, maybe I moved again to become effectively self-employed doing books full time. So it's at this point, really, it's about a blend of the coding experience and a blend of the writing experience in one centralized location, which is my head. So how do you move from PHP and Linux to Swift? What, well, what path not, took you there? It's not necessarily PHP. I mean, yes, I've been doing a lot of PHP, and I've you know I've wrote a book for O'Reilly on PHP, PHP in a nutshell. Um, but I think you know some of the most interesting coders I've spoken to in the past, and uh, they are 
equal opportunity love givers. You know, they, they will love any kind of hacking they can get their hands on. They will hack great things on a Raspberry Pi or an Apple TV or an Android smartphone. You know, I've written software for Windows Mobile because I had one at the time and it was back when it was a good thing. Um, and I just love breaking, fixing, reassembling everything I can get my hands on, quite frankly. Um, and I think that it, so it's not necessarily a path from PHP to Swift. It's a path to PHP to, from PHP to Swift via everything else I, I get my hands on, quite frankly. And I, I made an Xbox 360 game because, because why not? Because it was there. You know, I had one. I thought, oh, I'll hack on it. Um, so Swift is just, it's just one endpoint of many, if that makes sense. Actually, it does. It makes quite a lot of sense. It sounds like you bring a real passion for finding things that you can explore and learn in depth and then share that. Is that fair? Certainly, I've got a passion for hacking with things. You know, the website's called Hacking with Swift. And occasionally, like, you know, once every sort of three to four months, I get someone saying, uh, can you hack my girlfriend's iPhone for me by email? Like, no, it's more sort of like hack day or hackathon kind of hacking. Um, but the website is really about that creative impulse to here are some very exciting things that we have to play around with, whether that's, you know, the iPhone 10's ridiculously fast CPU or depth sensor or the latest Mac OS uh, high Sierra features or touch bars or, you know, Apple TV 4K. There's always wondrous things for us to experiment with, have fun with, learn about, uh, tinker with and I just enjoy doing that myself. And yeah, I, I guess I enjoy sharing that effusiveness uh, with everybody else I can find who'll stay still long enough for me to talk to them. So let me ask again, why Apple? <sighs> I, I, that's a complicated question. I mean, for me at least. Um, you know, obviously print publishing is an Apple world. So I had a Mac at work long before I had a Mac at home. Uh, and... I only really switched to Mac OS uh, part-time at, at 10.4, Tiger. Um, and then full-time from Snow Leopard, maybe? Like, you know, as in everything I am doing now is on Mac OS from 10.6 onwards. 10.4 happened at home. It was nice. I'd, I'd do keynotes and stuff, but I wouldn't um, be coding on it. I was doing a lot of Windows stuff at the time, um, and that used you know, a, a ratty old Dell laptop, quite frankly. But it let me do Visual Studio and C Sharp, or whatever. Um, and I think uh, it's one of those things where you know I, I don't want to come across as being an Apple fanboy because that's a horrible thing to be, I think. Um, but I do have uh, iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, um, you know, MacBook Pro. Um, and at this point I am so vested in the Apple community that it's very hard to escape or even want to escape because, you know, I've been, I've been dabbling increasingly since 10.6 in the Apple world and I've covered maybe a third of it, maybe a third, you know, it's such a huge, vast landscape of, of shiny things to enjoy. And helpfully every year they go, Hey, all new things coming out, all new shiny. It's amazing. Um, so, uh, the, uh, the blackbird in me wants to go and look at the new shiny things, quite frankly, and try them out. But I'm not sure the particular reason why Apple, um, you know, I guess I could say the same thing about Android if I'd really got into the Android world. It's, it's problematic because nowadays 
you know, I don't want to say I have rose tinted spectacles, but uh, it used to be so much better <laughs> back around, you know, 10.6, 10.7. Mac OS was super stable and everything worked nicely. And now it's all a bit shaky. Um, but it's too late for me now. I'm, I'm totally vested in this uh, ecosystem. So I'm kind of stuck. What took you from Objective-C to Swift? Because it's clear that you're big into Swift. What, what's that story? Oh, it was immediate. You know, the, the code base we had was gigantic. I mean, I, I must have written uh, two-thirds of it, but it, it was easy, easily six figures lines of code. It was huge, sprawling code base we had, and it was all Objective-C. Um, and then on day one of Swift being announced, I was sort of sitting at my desk in the office, downloaded the Swift book, the reference guide from um, Dave Addy and his team. Uh, and like a lot of folks, read it cover to cover and you know immediately started grilling other folks about what various things meant uh you know i remember the optionals thing confusing me like it confuses folks today who are still learning um and fighting with it but then i i stuck with it and i, I made the jump immediately at least for all my own personal projects you know obviously the uh, corporate stuff remains objective c but my own personal stuff has been swift since literally day one. I released an app on the App Store for the launch of iOS 8 when it was the first time you could launch uh, Swift apps. I had an app on the App Store um, because it was just exciting and different. And I haven't updated that actually. And it's 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 all Swift 1.0 code. So it would never, ever, ever compile. I have to go back multiple Xcode versions to get that thing to compile. Um, but, you know, I was there from day one, like a lot of folks. And it is very exciting. And it is dynamic and always changing uh and it's changing even faster than the platforms are nowadays you know swift uh 4.1 is a huge release and 4.2 i think even bigger so it's changing rapidly two or three times a year now which is even faster pace than the sort of star os uh systems they have coming out of the rest of cupertino so is this a good thing this kind of rapid change or is this something that is problematic for developers that might give them pause before jumping into the Swift bandwagon? Uh, well, I think from a from a purely business perspective, yes, it's a fantastic thing that Swift keeps changing because it means folks have to buy books all the time. Hurrah! Um, but uh, I should say for your listeners, uh, my books do have a lifetime Swift update policy. As Swift changes, you get a new edition of the book free of charge. I'm just kidding. Um, is it a good thing Swift's changing? You know, I guess at some point, you know, Swift 7 approximately, it will slow down. Let's face it, 5 is going to be really boring. 5 will be ABI stability and you know, a handful of other small things. 6 will be the one which is really surprising. That'll be the you know, async uh, await code, almost certainly, or similar. But then after that, after the sort of big bang of Swift 6, it's going to calm down because it cannot keep changing. There's a point at which enterprises have uh, a lot of investment in Swift source code. It has a monetary value. They cannot keep breaking code uh, at all at some point. You know, even, even Swift you know, 4.0 was a, a non-breaking release, but it still required you to migrate your code across. Things like you know, NS attributed string keys changed ever so slightly the format they're written in, just enough to make you, make you do the sort of migration wizard or, or do it by hand. So it can't continue much longer. I think we're talking, talking sort of maybe three years and it will settle down. Uh, so I think it is a good thing because to a point they have been able to say this thing here uh, is nasty. We we got wrong the access controls. 
twice. Um, we got wrong, you know, strings being a, a sequence or not. Um, and they can do that at this point. But as soon as ABI stability ships, you know, when Apple starts using it this year or next year, it'll be very expensive to start changing Swift. So they'll back down sooner or later, I think. I want to steer you to Andrew's wheelhouse. And you mentioned just a bit back about your hacking with Swift and your hacking series. And you, you mentioned that your employers, when you were at the magazine, they paid for you to take some classes in what sounds like technical writing. I want to talk more about the philosophy of how do you teach technology? Because this is something that's very near and passionate to several of us here. And it's something that you've been doing for some number of years now. So you have this background, this training and so forth. Can you talk about the philosophy of how you take a technology that you yourself have just been very excited about and so forth and make it wonderful and exciting to a reader? How do you do that? I think if, if I look at the people who... Um, inspire me as writers it is not any serious technical writer like i don't inspire myself i don't you know no one who's ever written a swift book inspires me bluntly because uh, you know so for linux format right it's a book it's a magazine about linux it's really every month the geekiest thing you want how do you recompile your kernel why the heck does your sound card not work today whatever usual sort of basic linux problems and they'd say listen okay well i'd say i was the editor you know we're going to do a a a eight page feature on zen you know the 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 virtualization system for, for linux kernels and i'd spend you know two weeks researching zen or interviewing folks or whatever and then writing it up and it ended up being six to eight thousand words about virtualization heavyweight stuff and that i think is actually very easy to do because you're kind of preaching to the choir you're speaking to people who want to learn Swift or want to understand Zen virtualization or whatever. They already have this buy-in in their head that you have the answer for the question. So you can just kind of drone on a little bit. You can just talk about in any direction you like, in any platform you like, any way you like, any uh, any structure you like, and they'll kind of suck it up, which is which is which is important. But it's, it doesn't excite me. What excites me is um, as a as a, a a chap who writes for. Um, BBC News in their Click channel. Uh, his name's Rory Cleckland Jones. And um, he explains things like, you know, uh, Oculus VR or um, Apple's Bionic CPU, whatever. He has to write articles about those things aimed at the general public who couldn't care less. They don't want to understand the technical stuff, they just want to understand. How will this make my life better? So he has to find a way to take extraordinarily complex things like the TrueDepth sensor on iPhone X and make it applicable and exciting and interesting to general readers. And those are the kind of writers who really inspire me, the ones who find a way to take a very, very complex thing and make it so exciting that everyone wants to be interested, not just people like me. Because like I said earlier, when I'm writing 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book. I'm basically doing a brain dump of what I find interesting or exciting or entertaining about this topic. And it's, that's trivial for me to do. Whereas if I, if I try and write for um, someone else, you know, my nephew, who's 12, who couldn't really care less about Swiss at this point in his life, I'd have to be a, a very, very different approach. So that's the, the main thing I try and think about when I write is that how can I make this exciting and applicable rather than just sort of me chatting away about code, which I can do for a very long time, quite frankly. You say you're inspired by that kind of writing. How do you how do you try to incorporate that into the books that you're writing? I mean, you do have a different audience, right? I mean, you're selling you're selling books to people who do care about Swift and and do have a absolutely interest in it. absolutely. You know, uh, I don't know how long, long ago it was. Um, oh, uh, about, about about ten years ago or so, I went to a a presentation about presentations. You know, it was a talk about giving talks. Um, by Damien Conway, the the well-known uh, Pearl hacker. Uh, and, you know, one of the things he said, you know, he, he said so many great things in that presentation, but one of the things he said was, uh, you need to come across kind of like David Attenborough. And I'm not sure how much you, you get in the US of David Attenborough, but he's a naturalist TV presenter. He travels around the world. He's in his 90s. He meets you know, Komodo dragons or penguins or polar bears. He gets really, really close to them. And what Attenborough does so very, very well is he turns wildlife into this sort of contact sport. You know, he 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 makes uh, a the Arctic wasteland extremely intimate and extremely immediate. So they're just you just feel like he's loving every minute of it and he's totally excited about these penguins and he's totally preoccupied with these penguins. He's absorbed. He's captivated with what he's talking about. And as a result, I become absorbed. I become excited. I become in the moment with, with David Attenborough. And, you know, when uh, Apple announced things like, you know, iOS 10 or iOS 11 or who knows what next week, uh, wink, wink, um, that I want that same sort of excitement to come across in my books, that I am literally downloading Xcode X, Xcode 10, Xcode, who knows what, alongside you, I'm pouring over the API diffs, which I am, I'm hacking with absolutely everything I can get my hands on, trying it out, breaking it again, trying something else, breaking that, really getting in there and and, and poking every corner I can find, and just giving it to you as if we're having sort of coffee. Say, look what I found. Oh, this is so cool. Check this out. Um, and that's my goal. That's what I wanted to do. That is, is that I want people to feel that they are almost in like a one-to-one uh, uh, workshop with me. I'm speaking direct to them. So my language in my books is always fairly relaxed and chatty. I, I, I don't ever write formally. It doesn't work for me. Um, so I, it's almost like a, it's a, it's a competing podcast, but it's almost like Fireside Swift. Let's just, uh, have a chat to pull over some coffee about iOS 12, 13, 14, who knows what. That's my goal. I can't say it always works like that, but that's my goal. So what advice do you have for people that are trying to write about technical topics? Like how can, how can they improve? I think the first thing to do is, well, not write about technical topics for a start. Um, I don't, I don't mean like, you know, don't do it. I mean, uh, you know, so I had, I had a lot of training for writing, you know, it's a company with hundreds of journalists 
there was a stack, a huge stack of training. You could do one every week, every two weeks, every three weeks. You could do training about all sorts of things, how to write great headlines, how to write great covers, how to write great tutorials. I went all of them because they're free, so why not? And the one that stuck with me the absolute most was a full day course on how to write reviews. You know, how to get something in, some software, some game, some guitar, some whatever, and write a compelling review about it. And in the afternoon, at about, you know, two o'clock or so, they said, okay, you've had the, the training now. It's time for a practical exam. I'd like you to write a review. And in this case, they gave us, the, the trainer gave us, uh, I think, eight bottles of mineral water of different brands. You know, here's some Evian, whatever, different brands of, of water. And he said, okay, you've got to go right away and write a group test. So reviewing all these eight, a group test, and your word count is 200 words. You've got an hour. Go for it. And like I said, I, I, I was writing for this magazine at the time called, called Linux Format, where one page of text was 800 words of extremely dense technical stuff. You know, uh, install this, hack that, compile this, whatever, all sorts of things. And that was, you know, a, a small review for me of one thing was 800 words. And I tried to do a, a 200 word review of eight things. And the finished review I wrote was atrocious. It was really, really bad. It was almost like Morse code. I'd eliminated all every possible word that didn't have to be there was removed down to the absolute bare minimum. Uh, and it, it just, it, it sunk. It was a disaster. Um, and sitting next to me, uh, afterwards was someone from the games team. I think it was games radar or PC gamer. I forget who it was who had done the same eight bottles of mineral water uh, and had written a brilliant review. And it, I, from that, I learned so much. Now, now his technique was, was genius. He said, okay, there are eight bottles of water. I have 200 words. I'm going to toss away four bottles of water immediately. These four, I just don't care about. Of the remaining four, these three are vaguely interesting. Here are 30 words each on those. And the remaining one, the winner of the group test, that gets the remaining 100 words. So he, he effectively ditched half and then focused on one and did a little bit on the other three. As a result, he wrote a great review. And it taught me a huge amount just seeing, A, how bad my Morse code attempt to do all eight in a tiny word count was. But it, it's about, you know, the, when, you, when you write anything about anything ever, quite frankly, you, you know, it could be uh, about dog treats. It could be about mountain bikes. It could be about guitars. It could be about Swift you are immediately making a series of editorial choices. What you write about, who your audience is going to be, how long you intend to write for and so forth. And those editorial choices are what set you apart from other folks in the same area as you. And editorial, you can say, listen, I just don't think that, you know, in all of say Swift 4.2, which is due out any day now, I'm going to do an article on Swift 4.2, it's going to be 500 words, to make that work, to make that be meaningful, I'm going to write about um, case iterable and uh, the hash warning syntax. But I'm not going to talk about 
uh, dynamic member lookup or hashable, whatever it is that's changing elsewhere. You make a series of choices, and in doing so, it makes your thing stand out more clearly because it's your style, your approach, and so forth. So the advice I'd give folks uh, who I think you're doing technical writing is decide what that editorial stance is and be honest about it. Be really clear in your head about it. You haven't got to sort of necessarily communicate that to your, your readers, but at least decide ahead of time who you're speaking to, what your style is going to be, what your frequency is going to be, what your word count is going to be, uh, you know, how you select things, and then go for it and, and, and fill your boots because that's unique and special in its own way. What's your what's your process like for getting feedback? And uh, I mean, I, I I teach in the classroom where I get pretty immediate feedback from people that I'm teaching about, uh, you know, how I've put together curriculum or my teaching style, or how I'm presenting concepts. Um, you're a little bit more disconnected because you're sending these books out there into the world and people are reading them sort of on their own. Um, what do you do to to find out what's what works and what doesn't? It's it's certainly true that when I do a live workshop. It is very nice because you can literally look in someone's eyes and say, he doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. They don't get it, whatever. Um, or, you know, with enough coaxing, people will ask questions. They'll put their hands up and say, could you repeat that, please? Whatever. Um, and uh, that does, does help. And obviously with books, you haven't got that. You're effectively writing into a, a great void. Uh, and realistically, you have to come to terms with that. I think that's one of the many lessons you take from the magazine world is that you you really don't get much feedback you know every sort of i don't know four years maybe five years would do a a reader survey in the magazine would say okay here are you know three to four pages of questions we've put together and each question is you know how much do you like this what do you want to see more of whatever with one being i hate this thing and five being i love this thing and you know what we'd normally see was Across all the magazine, people would say to every section, every you know, news, tutorials, features, reviews, letters, whatever, every section, they either want lots, lots more of, or they want a little more of. No one would ever say, I hate this, ditch it, or I really not like, ditch it. Um, and that showed us we're onto the right tack. You know, when, when you normalize those answers, you know, if you start calling, I want a little bit more of, I hate it, or I want less of. If you normalize it around a sort of zero point, um, it gives you an idea of, of what to do more of and what to do less of. But broadly, as long as all the answers are positive, you know, we want a bit more or, or a lot more of something, you know you're in the right direction. And I think <sighs> editing a magazine means every month you start with 132 blank pages every single month. You can't say, ah, oh, you know, uh, August, it's a disaster, too busy. Let's skip August and go September. It's, it's a monthly magazine. You've got to get something on the newsstands every single month. And it teaches you, I think, to kind of trust your gut to say, this interests me. This interests my colleagues. Um, this interests people I've met before. Um, therefore, it's a hot topic. I want to get it covered. And I pretty much follow the same thing with, with Swift. You know, it hasn't ever happened that someone's emailed me saying, could you write a book about, you know, X, Y, Z? And I've said, yes, perfect. I'll be on it next week. I haven't done that ever. I, all the books are what I feel like I should be doing next. So again, I'm kind of writing for me. What book would I like to see next? And again, hoping that people out there are like me. And it turns out some folks sadly are. 
You've talked about the magazine. You've talked about the books. But I know there's something there besides workshops that's really cool. It's your videos. Can you talk about those? Do you mean the Swift in 60 Seconds videos or something else? I do, I do a any, few videos. Any of them. Any of Basically, them. Basically, because video is a very different medium to writing. And so how do you approach it? How do you develop it? How do you decide on the length of something? How do you create all this varied content? I really, really hate doing videos. I, mean, I, I, I have no ability. I have no passion. I have no willpower. And yet, for some reason, I keep telling myself I should do more videos. And I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I'm just not made out for videos. Um, you know, it, I, I did a series. It's, it's a free online video series of, I think, 98, 99 videos called Swift in 60 Seconds. And it teaches Swift concepts one at a time in one minute or less. So there's no time for sort of chat or waffle or those really awful sort of YouTube, hey guys, what's up, it's me again, whatever intros you get all the time. There's no space for that, it's one minute or less. And a one minute video would often take me 20 or 30 minutes to record. I'd do so many retakes, outtakes, screw ups, edits, whatever. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a massive time sink for me, quite frankly, doing videos. I'm just so bad at it. Uh, so ideally for me in, in the perfect world, I would say to somebody else, Hey, here's all this great text I've written. You go ahead and you do the videos. I'll see you in two weeks. That's my ideal goal, quite frankly, because I'm just so very bad at videos. I just don't enjoy them in the same way I do writing. That's actually quite a pity because I really enjoy watching them. Yeah, I think you might you might enjoy them because you're seeing the end product. So you've talked about writing. You've talked about journalism. You've talked about the areas that you've done and giving these uh, wonderful workshops and so forth. But there's something else that I associate with you that you haven't really talked about, which is your video output, which I was hoping that you could talk about how you create that content and how it differs from creating more traditional content like writing. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I did a course a few months ago called Swift in 60 Seconds. Uh, it's all online, free of charge. Um, and it's 98, 99-ish videos teaching the fundamentals of Swift in sort of one minute at a time. Um, so there's, there's no space for waffle, no space for chat, no space for those sort of tedious YouTube, um, hey guys, what's up, it's me again, two straws kind of intros. It's right in from the very beginning, uh, Swift, and there's no chit-chat. And it was, honestly, it was, it was so horrible to make. It was so horrible to make because I really suck at making videos. I, I love writing. I love writing books very much. I can write articles every day and, and, and enjoy it. But videos, um, you know, I, I, I spend a long time doing retakes. You know, I will do 10, 20, 30 retakes sometime until I'm, my voice is going. I'm blue in the face. I'm so angry with myself for screwing up so many times. Um, and even then after doing the recording, I then put into editing and I'm tweaking and I'm adjusting and I'm, I'm futzing with stuff. 
Um, it takes me a very, very long time to make even a one minute video. And I keep confusing myself into saying, Hey, I should do more videos, but I really shouldn't because I suck at videos. And, uh, you know, the, the, the finished result, the, the final product, people might say, Oh, this looks really, really slick and really well organized, but you're kind of missing out on the weeks of screaming and cursing and, and rage beforehand at all the mistakes and confusion and, and screw ups I make constantly while recording. So for me, they are completely different things. I can, you know, I, I, I've never actually said this before to anybody ever. Um, I wrote a book on Mac OS development. It's 500 pages. I wrote the entire book in two weeks because I loved it. I was just so excited, so passionate, so in the moment. I just, brrrm, I was writing at lightning fast speed for two weeks because I just loved it so, so much. And that is the polar opposite on video recording for me. Every small thing is a hurdle, a speed bump, a mistake, a retake. Uh, and uh, <laughs> just I, it's a disaster. And yet I still do it. I don't know why. I must hate myself somehow. Well, speaking as an audience member, we certainly don't hate the result, but hearing what you go through, that's horrible, <laughs> putting yourself through that sort of agony. What you're seeing ultimately is no different from Facebook. You know, uh, on, on, on Facebook, you know, it's it's my it's my mum and dad, it's my 94-year-old grandmother, it's my cousins, it's only my family on Facebook, none of my sort of, you know, coding friends and stuff, it's all family. Uh, and I post pictures in there of my eight-year-old daughter and my four-year-old daughter, and we're, we're doing things, we're going to the farm to try things out, whatever. We're just doing things and having a nice time. And, and that's what my family want to see, pictures of the kids they can sort of like and, and comment on. But if you took that as my life, you'd be very much mistaken. You know, it's it's a, it's a highlight reel ultimately. It's 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 the best of Hudson. Um, has none of the uh, problems of daily family life. You know, just 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 this week, I've been a dad for eight years now. Just this week, I made the mistake of letting my kids go near glitter. God, glitter. Glitter everywhere. Even I'm sure even today it's glitter somewhere on me. But I'm going to tell you a truth of parenting. Go ahead. 25 years from now, you're still going to be finding that glitter. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it, it glitter is just one of those substances. It's just never going to go away. It is. It is crafting herpes. Quite frankly, um, <laughs> it never goes away. <laughs> but but it, it, that's that's the that's the reality of my life. Is that you don't see on Facebook? You get the highlight reel of my life. You think, oh, this, this guy's great. And the videos, you can look at them and say, well, these are really polished, they're really slick, they're organized, they're interesting. He obviously loves it because you're missing out on the sort of 24 hours of consistent screaming before I, I finish recording. Um, so uh, my ideal would be to say I would write books full time and say to somebody else, hey, here are all the books. You go ahead and record all the videos you want based on those books. We'll split the money. We'll figure out from there. I haven't got to worry about it, you know, to sort of see you in two weeks with the finished product. That'd be really nice. So on a more philosophical level, is you brought something up that really resonated with me. Glitter, right? <laughs> no, it wasn't the glitter. How do you make your life more Mac development and less one minute Swift? Just in general, your entire life. I think, honestly, before we, you know, when we had one child, 
life was significantly easier. It was so much easier. And then when you get two kids, you get all sorts of comedy arguments like, oh, she's looking out of my window. Like, oh, come on. Please, please give me a break for a few minutes at a time. And sometimes, you know, when when life isn't going so well, it can feel very much like you're just kind of uh, careening from one fire over here to another fire over there to some third fire in distance coming towards you very very quickly um uh, and i'd love to say i have some brilliant way of sorting that out but i really haven't the best way i've found so far the best advice i've had so far the best thing i've done in my life so far was to uh convert our our, our loft our attic into an extra bedroom so one of the kids is up there now. So we have more space in the house. So effectively spreading out my life slightly more has made it less frantic, less confused. I have, I've now got a, a fairly convenient, pleasant office to work in full time. The kids are aware when the door is closed, they don't come in. So I get a little bit of headpiece now and then. And that's made the world a difference, quite frankly. That that plus uh, regular naps. Naps are awesome. <laughs> Enjoy them while you have the naps because they do go away. That's too bad. Anyway, we're running a little bit low on time. So anything else we should cover before we get to the picks? I think we're good. And I'm going to do um, Andrew's pick as well as my pick. For you, the listeners of the iFreak show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. All right, Erica, do you have a pick for us? I actually have two picks this week. For Andrew, I am going to um, pick his UPS, um, which is the Uninterrupted Power Supply which he just bought and it has worked beautifully this week because if anybody noticed Andrew sort of disappeared midway through this podcast and his uh, UPS system worked amazingly as all of Utah apparently went into a complete blackout but unfortunately his router was not on the UPS system so his pick this week is his UPS system as for my own pick, I've totally forgotten what it was. <laughs> was it your UPS system? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so focused on Andrews. I knew what it was coming in. I had it I had it all picked. Now I can't remember what it is. But it was really good though, right? It was awesome. It was yeah. truly awesome. And it did not involve volcanoes or chickens. They're all going to be a little disappointed about it. But... <laughs> no, sorry. I'm totally blank. All right. Um, you can ask Paul what his pick is first. Let's do that. Paul, do you have a pick for us? I've got many picks, but I, I'll, I'll keep it short. <laughs> two, two are coding related and two aren't coding related. That's okay. Perfect. Great. 
So one of the uh, coding ones is I just adore the new uh, Swift 4.2 random unification system uh, to generate random numbers. This is uh, from uh, Swift Evolution 202, and it's just fantastic. You know, doing randomization in Swift was really horribly hard. You have to use like gameplay kit previously or arc for random uniform. And, and uh, SEO 202 is just fantastic because you can now say things like uh, int.random in some range or float.random or bool.random or shuffle this array and so forth. And it just works baked right into Swift. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love that very much. Uh, another coding one uh, is open term from Louis Deho, uh, Louis Deho. Um, uh, and I, hopefully you already know about this lovely app for your um, iOS device. It's a, it's a great terminal for your iOS device with actually a built-in um, language now, Cub. But it's interesting because this week, you know, last week, sorry, he was changing its licensing because he released the entire thing under the MIT license, which is obviously a, a very, very uh, open license. And uh, some developer, perhaps you might call them unscrupulous, um, took the source code and released it again on the App Store, um, called something like Open Terminal or similar, uh, and charged for it. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks online were complaining, saying, you know, how dare you do this? It's not ethical. It's not moral, yada, yada, yada. Um, but actually, I was kind of like, hey, cool, because, you know, that's kind of what the MIT license says. You can go ahead and sell it, distribute it however you want to. Um, so anyway, he's now changing that to, to a, a GPL slash MPL dual license based on VLC, which I think is very interesting because coming from the Linux world, I'm, I'm aware of uh, some of the pain GPL can cause folks. Um, there are some non-coding ones. Uh, more recently, uh, in between writing, I've been watching best of selections from all the Star Treks. I've been through all of uh, Deep Space Nine, all of Next Generation. I've just finished going through best of Voyager. And I was really blown away, actually, because previously I'd, I'd said that, you know, Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek. But the best of, of Voyager is amazing. Almost, almost every single one is like, wow, this is hard SF or brilliant acting or brilliant character line development. Really, really good stuff. So I kind of raised my opinion of Voyager a long way because having watched the entire Voyager from you know one through seven seasons, there are some real episodes in there. But if you watch only the greats, you're like, wow, this proper, this is a, this is, this is a great Star Trek series. And the last one um, is a, a, an album from the Glitch Mob. A, a group I quite like. It's called Sea Without Eyes. It is glitch music, which is kind of like modified noise in a way, musical noise. But it's a great album. Have a check that out if you want to. Um, sea Without Eyes by The Glitch Mob. That's it for me. Awesome. So yeah, throw some links for your picks in the in the Skype chat, and we'll get it in the show notes for everyone else. Great, Erica. Have we recovered the last pick? We haven't, but I'm going to go for a better pick, which is I'm going to go with Guy's WWDC app version six, which he is currently um, polishing off. And once WWDC starts and even when it's done, in fact, more importantly, when it's done, it gives you full access to all the WWDC content, including transcripts, including videos and so forth. It is a fabulous app, an amazing app, and it really a wonderful tool in any developer's arsenal. So I highly, highly recommend it. Definitely. Yeah, that's why Guy was not with us today. He's hard at work getting that ready. Um, by the time this comes out, WW will be live, and the app should be live as we, as we hope. Anyway, Paul, 
Thanks so much for coming on the show. We learned a lot about writing in Swift and writing Swift and all that. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And for everyone else, we'll see you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.